Rainy day. Happy Election Day. This morning we are talking about the two beasts of the apocalypse. I kid you not. That's just where we are in Revelation 13. Coincidence, you decide. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the morning you've given us. We do thank you for the rain, O oh Lord, the way that the rain refreshes your creation, the world you've made. Um, Father, we do think, and um, it's heavy on our hearts this morning, we think about um, the country that you've given us, and um, what a blessing it's been to us who did not choose it for ourselves, but we're um, grateful to be raised in it. Father, we pray for the leaders that, um, that we'll decide on locally and nationally today. We pray, Father, that you would give us wise leaders, O oh God. Um, we pray, Father, that um, no matter who you give us, O oh Lord, that we would be good citizens, both here and of heaven, um, that you would uh, give us a vision for discipleship in our place, and that we would trust you as our Lord and King. In Christ's name, amen. You ever had the experience of, of, of hiking or maybe going on a walk, maybe even biking, and uh, coming to the place that you thought was the end, the goal, the summit of your journey, and finding out when you got there that you still had, the summit was a long ways off. Like this happens a lot when you're hiking. You think you've reached the pinnacle and you come to a clearing and you realize that you still have more elevation to climb, more pain to endure. Um, you've probably heard there's a, there's a, in mountaineering lingo, there's a term for this, it's called a, a false peak. A false peak, I, um, could be the name for my autobiography, I think. A false peak, the disappointing story of a guy that was lived in Dallas. So here's what the Cultural Authority Wikipedia um, says about false peaks. It says, false peaks can have significant effects on a climber's psychological state by inducing feelings of dashed hopes or even failure. The term false peak can also be applied to uh, non-mountaineering activities where obstacles posing as the end goal produce the same emotional effects. That is to say, when you come there, you have this overwhelming feel, feeling of, uh, of failure, of disappointment, of dashed hope. Um, you can imagine that the early church felt something of this after the resurrection appearance and ascension of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? They've seen him risen. Um, he's going to sit on the throne of God the Father to take his throne to, to be seated. And yet, um, there is still more distance to climb, more pain to endure, more journey to continue in. And Revelation 11, especially, that's two chapters ago, speaks of why they may have felt this way. So the end of chapter 11 concludes what is considered to be Act 1 of the book of Revelation. And what happens at the end of 11 is a series of events that sound like this. They have the blowing of the final trumpet. You have the public declaration, the announcement that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the public announcement of the resurrection and reign of Jesus over all things. You have in chapter 11 the ending of the plagues. And at the very end, you have um, uh, this public display of all glory and honor and majesty being ascribed to God. So you read at the end of Revelation, and this is the experience of the early church, and it seems like it's time to exhale. It seems like the people of God have finally reached the climax of God's salvation. And yet, it's not so. Because when the curtain opens on chapter 12 and Paul 
did such a great job of discussing this last week, we learned that the war between good and evil is still raging. If you weren't with us last week, or if you were with us, you'll remember that we said in Revelation 12, let me give you a quick synopsis, we read about a dragon, and the dragon, no doubt, is the ancient symbol for the devil, the ancient symbol for Satan himself. And the dragon is pursuing a woman and her child. We also learn that the dragon is unable to sort of consummate his pursuit and kill the child, but he, he starts uh, this fierce war in heaven, and he is, as a consequence, thrown out of heaven down to earth. And now the dragon on earth remains on the prowl. He is ferocious, and he is, in a way, cornered because he's lost territory in other places. Have you ever seen an animal that is angry and that is cornered? Right? That is the picture of the devil in Revelation 12. And Revelation 12 ends uh, with, uh, with this comment, that the devil now lives on earth to make war on those who keep the commandments of God and who hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. So Revelation 11, though it's the declaration of victory for the cause of good and evil, Revelation 11, if you're reading the story of the gospel, is a false peak of sorts. In Revelation 12, we realize and we confront the reality that we have still not reached the climax and pinnacle of God's salvation. And while it is true that evil is no longer in charge of our world, it is also true that evil, according to, to Revelation 12 and 13, evil is very much still present. It is still strong. It is still strategic. And it is still resolute as a cornered animal seeking to devour whatever it can get its hands on. You know, Paul did again a masterful job last week of talking about the identity of the dragon in Revelation 12 as Satan himself. And this morning in Revelation 13, we encounter uh, two of the dragon's henchmen. Um, the beasts of both the sea and the land. And I just want you to notice the language when we read that both of them rise up. You have resurrection language in connection with the two beasts. And they rise up to continue the work of opposition to God here on earth. As I read the whole of, uh, of 13 this morning, I just want you to think about these questions. These are the sort of the ones in front of us. Number one, how does evil do its work in our world? How does evil do its work in our world? What are the chief characteristics of evil? How can we recognize it? Okay, two, how does it become visible? Where do we see it? Like with our eyes, where do we feel it? Where do we touch it? Where do we encounter it in our own lives? And then, of course, the most crucial thing for us this morning, how do we resist the beasts as those who are called to endure? How do we resist the evil that becomes incarnate in our world that does the work of the dragon in chapter 12? Let's read chapter 13 together, and then we'll dig in. John writes, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. The beast had ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns. Blasphemous names were written on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. They worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. 
and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? The beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from earth to heaven in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. It's good to remember this morning as we transition. Okay, so a couple questions I just mentioned to you before. If you want to write them down, you can. They're the way that we're going to proceed this morning. The first is we just want to wake up by making some observations of the beasts. What are the characteristics of the beasts themselves? That is, what are the features by which we can recognize evil at work in our world? The second question goes like this. How does it become visible? In other words, um, uh, who are the beasts? Who are the beasts themselves? Not just the characteristics, but how do we find them at work? And then finally, how do we heed the call of verse 10? Really, the main application of chapter 13 is here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. How do we do that? How do we resist and overcome and become the conquerors? that Revelation continues to call us to throughout the book. How do we resist evil as we journey towards God and his enduring city? Take those in turn. First of all, let's look at the beast for a moment. What do you make of the first beast? I mean, just like impressions? What's your impression of the first beast? Uh, Pretty scary, right? Like, um, you know, leopard, we got some sort of leopard, lion. um, What else is it? a bear with ten horns and seven heads, something that you would never want to meet in any kind of alley, dark or light. The beast is a scary figure. By recognition, it is a beast by looking at it. And I just want you to notice that it has, um, uh, John says, he sees ten diadems, that is ten crowns. And if you remember back in chapter 12, the dragon itself had seven crowns, seven crowns. And the crowns are this insatiable 
thirst, desire to rule. And what John is seeing is that though the devil has been thrown down to earth, it's, his desire to rule is not diminished at all. It's only intensified. You actually have more diadems now. You have more of a thirst. You have more of a desire to exercise and exert power and gain control over any territory that it can. And then in verse 3, another important characteristic. What do you notice in verse 3? What does it say? You can say it back to me. What does it say? The beast has a what? A mortal wound. You know what a mortal wound is? It's a wound that you don't recover from. Right? It is a lethal wound. It is fatal. And yet John points out that that this beast has a wound that cannot be healed, that is in fact healed in the presence of everyone. And so what John sees is a force, a beast, that looks remarkably resilient, perhaps even invincible. And so you see the whole earth says in verse 4, like, who is like this beast? And who in the world could possibly conquer it? Who could fight against it? We continue in verses 5 and 6, and you see there that the beast is very arrogant. It uh, it takes an overt position against God, almost shaking its fist in defiance against God and against heaven. In verse 7, the beast persecutes and conquers the people of God. And I want you to tell me if you've ever heard this language before in verse 7. Authority was given it over every tribe and people and language. Have you heard that before? Who is it ascribed to before? To Christ. Put that away for a moment, okay? And so in verse 8, just like Jesus, the whole world bows down before the beast in worship. So how do we recognize the first beast? What are the characteristics, the features by which evil becomes apparent to us who are looking for it? We recognize it by its hunger for power. We recognize it by its widespread influence. We recognize it by its resilience, even in the face of deep opposition. And we recognize it finally by its open defiance against God. And look, if you missed all of that, here's the point I really want to make this morning, and I think that John is making to us. This first beast makes claims about authority, invincibility, and transcendence that only God himself can ever truly make. And people are worshiping this beast as if the beast himself were their Lord and their Savior. So I want you to see what John is doing. John is giving you, this morning, where you sit, a memorable picture of what idolatry looks like from the perspective of heaven. And he is saying that when anything else becomes our God, when anything else in our life takes on functionally the honor and the authority of the one true God, then it will be to you in the end a beast. It will be in your life an insatiable monster that will seem impossible for us to kill. That's the first beast. Let's go to the second one. What does the second beast look like? What does it look like? Say it. It has two horns, but it looks like a, like a, like a lamb, okay? Now, I, my guess is, in your imagination, that you would never call a lamb a beast, like a fierce beast. I, don't, I know of no horror movies where, where lambs are sort of the main, you know, the main threats. I mean, a lamb, by all appearances, and this is the point really here, Um, seems mild, tame, and benign. And the point immediately with the second beast is that it does not seem that bad when you look at it. By appearance, the second beast doesn't seem a threat, right? It's a lamb. Uh, C.S. Lewis has this great line in the Screwtape Letters. He writes, it doesn't matter how small the sins are in your life. 
provided that their cumulative effort is to edge you away from God and into nothingness. Murder is no better than playing cards if cards themselves can do the trick. Then he summarizes by saying this, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. It is the gentle slope, the soft underfoot. And what Lewis is saying is that evil sometimes does its best work when it appears like a lamb. Evil does its best work, its most deceptive work, when it appears mild and tame and benign. A gradual road, a soft underfoot. And so the second beast, unlike the first beast, is remarkably deceptive and benign in appearance until what happens? The lamb speaks, and he speaks, and it sounds like a, like a dragon. In other words, we know, that we know the beast by what it says. And here's the main thing I want you to see in 12 and 13, because it's so important to what John is doing in the book. What we have now by the introduction of the second beast is an unholy trinity that parallels the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The devil of chapter 12 is the head and source of all evil, which reminds us of the role of God the Father in our lives. The first beast, right, is the one claiming authority over every tribe and nation and people. Get this, whose mortal wound has been healed, resembling who? The resurrected Son of God. And now all of a sudden you have this second beast who is functionally the anti-Holy Spirit. This beast's job is to woo, to persuade, to convince, to soothe the conscience of the world in coming to worship the first beast. In other words, the second beast is the false prophet. Now I just want you to notice the parallels. Like the Holy Spirit, this beast does miraculous signs and wonders. And John is telling us, um, uh, um, by inference, that you can never trust signs and wonders alone to confirm the identity of a true prophet. The touchstone for true prophecy is not miracles. The touchstone for true prophecy is whether the prophet moves people to worship the one true God, or a false god. And just to continue the imagery this morning, because we we have to deal with the last part of 13, don't we? The second beast causes everyone to be marked with the anti-Trinitarian number, right, of of three sixes. And if you remember your sort of your math from Revelation from the whole Bible, six is is the number that falls short of completion and perfection. Seven is the number of perfection. So what, what John is telling us is here is a mark of the beast, of the unholy and satanic trinity that will never in its end pay off. It will always fall short of what it promises, fall short of what God is supposed to be. A false God will never in the end give you what you want from it. And again, you have this crucial parallel at the very end. Just as the Holy Spirit in the book of Revelation seals and marks the people that belong to Jesus Christ, the second beast seals and marks those who belong to the sea beast, the resurrected beast of the sea. Okay. Just feel like you got it now, basically. You know, take a breath for a moment. Um, I do want to talk about the number here in a moment. But I think, you know, we get fascinated with the number 666, and it's easy to, to do that and to miss the larger point. In Revelation, what John is saying at the end of Revelation 13, at the beginning of 14, is that everyone in the world gets marked. Do you see that? 
everyone in the world bears a mark. Every single individual either belongs to the one true God or he or she belongs to a false God. And John's point is, no matter your intention, there is no such thing as you ever having the capacity to remain neutral. There is no such thing as neutrality when it comes to worship. That everyone is in fact bowing down to something or to someone that has functionally become more important than anyone or anything else. And Revelation simply tells us that if that thing or that person is not God, then you will find it to be a monster of some kind that will ultimately deceive you and enslave you. And what John is introducing to us when he sees the vision of the beast, he, what he's introducing to us is that we have to be on guard to resist and to even overcome and conquer the core of the devil's work. And the core of the devil's work is idolatry. It is false worship of a false God. In fact, Martin Luther would say, look, this is why you have the first commandment as the first commandment. Because the failure to practice the first commandment, which is you shall have no other gods before me, is functionally the transgression then of every other commandment. The first commandment is where it all begins, that you would start and end with the worship of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Those are the, those are the two beasts. So how do we recognize them? Who are they? Who are they actually in our world? Well, let me do this. Here's how I want to do this this morning. I want to tell you what most commentators think, who most commentators think the beast referred to immediately for the first recipients of Revelation. Okay? Who, who, the, who, they, who John thought that the, the beast referred to immediately to the first recipients, to the ones who were getting the letter, the, the seven churches. And then... I'd like to give you a more recent parallel that I, will, I think will help us imagine the possibilities in our own time and place. Okay? So, there's quite a bit of consensus that the first beast was a reference to the imperial power of Rome. Okay? The Roman Empire itself. And the second beast is a picture of the propaganda machine of the imperial cult. Now, what does that mean? It means that, that there was a propaganda, a publicity machine that said, come and worship the emperor here is an empire that will never end. Uh, um, the emperor can give you the Pax Romana, Roman peace, apart from any god. He can give you what, uh, what you think heaven offers. It was the imperial cult that served to sort of draw people towards the worship of the emperor. So the, uh, the number 666. Now this is always sort of a fascinating study in Revelation. Now you'll notice it refers to what? The number of a, what does it say? The number of a what? Of a man. Okay, so we're to look out for a man. And the number itself assumes that the recipients would have been familiar with the ancient practice of gematria. Okay? Um, that was just the practice of assigning numerical values to letters in the alphabet so that they added up to make certain numbers. Now here's the hard part. Unless you already know the name you're looking for, it's almost impossible to know what the numbers refer to. Does that make sense? Because the numbers could be anything. And in fact, that's what we've seen in every generation. People can make names into or to tie to the numbers. You can do it today, I'm sure, on election day. You can somehow find a number 666 in a policy or a name of someone that you think might be the beast of the apocalypse. But here's what the, here's what the scholars note. Biblical scholars note that given the allusions to Nero in Revelation 13, 
it seems likely that the, that the number corresponds to Neron Kaiser, which adds up to 666, which is the Hebrew name for Nero Caesar. Now, what's the point? I'm not, I don't want you to be obsessed with puzzle solving this morning. The point is this, that the beast for the first listeners would not only have been identified with an individual, but also with the ideas and the institutions that help feed the web of idolatry in their world. Do you get that? Three eyes, not just individuals, but ideas and institutions as well. Now, why those three things? Because those three things, individuals and ideas and institutions, tend to be the things, the hinges, on which culture itself turns. So for the early listeners, it wasn't just Nero. It was the imperial claim of unlimited power and invincibility. And it was the publicity machine that made a religion, a secular religion, out of something like the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, which offered people what only heaven and God himself could truly offer. What I just want you to see this morning is that evil in our world is incarnated. It is made visible not only in people, not only in individuals, but in the ideas and in the institutions that feed and sustain the devil's influence in our world. And let me give you a more recent example. In the mid-20th century, think about it in your own, in your own mind. What incarnated racism across the southern part of the United States? Now, I, pick, I just bring up racism because it's sort of a, there's no real controversy with us. We, we, we all agree that it's evil. So what incarnated, what made it visible? What fed that particular evil in places like my home state of Tennessee? Was it only individuals? Was it only the men who were behind the white hoods? who bombed churches, who blocked school entrances, who attacked civil rights leaders? Well, you know the answer is no. It was also uh, the institution of Jim Crow. It was a segregated uh, education system. It was a GI bill that dispersed money disproportionately to white Southerners. And it was the soothing idea that I heard over and over in my childhood that all races are better off when they remain with their own kind. In fact, that was the pitch that I heard in my own fraternity in college. And I just want you to say this, that we tend, when we look outside at the world, to see evil incarnated in the Neros, in the Klansmen, in the Hitlers, in the Bernie Madoffs. We see it in the people. We see it in the Pontius Pilots, don't we? But I think what John is telling us, what Revelation um, uh, tells us to do is to see it not only in the individuals, but also to train ourselves to see the devil at work in the territory that lies behind and around those individuals. Do you know what the Apostle Paul calls that? He calls it the the principalities and the powers that are at work behind and around the people uh, that embody evil. That's what he says in Colossians and Ephesians. It's not just Pontius Pilate. It's in the crowds that are yelling to crucify him. Can you imagine being a part of that crowd and having to resist that? You know, it's not just, um, it's not just uh, in Nero. It's the Roman imperial system. Can you imagine being marked in such a way that you had to resist an entire cultural system? Can you imagine living in the South and standing up against Jim Crow? 
It's in those places where we are called to faith and endurance as those marked by Jesus Christ. We are called to stand up, not just to individuals, but to the institutions and ideas that together feed the web of idolatry and oppose the work of God in the world. Does that make sense? Not just the people, but the other things as well. And so how do we do that? Let me give you two thoughts from the passage this morning. Number one is this. We resist and endure by seeing the gospel not only as a message, but also as a claim. We resist and endure as Christians by seeing the the gospel not simply as a message, but a claim. That is a claim on our lives. So what I want you to see this morning, I think what John is getting at, is that the fundamental truth of Christian identity for you as a man is not that you said a prayer, or that at some point in your life you walked an aisle, um, or that you went through confirmation. It's that your life is fundamentally not your own. That you belong to Jesus Christ. How much so? Well, uh, 14.1, where where is the name um, put on those that belong to him? Do you see that? In 14.1, where is it marked? On the forehead. So the point is this, wherever your forehead goes, that's where the claim of God goes with you. Right? So wherever your forehead goes, that's where God's claim on your life goes. And John is trying to say, look, imagine your public identity being such that, you, that the word Jesus was tattooed across your face. <laughs> because that's who you belong to. You don't belong to your, to your work fundamentally or to your bank account or to your reputation or even to your wife or to ki- your kids. You belong fundamentally to God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and all of those other relationships will actually be the better for it. The gospel is not merely a message that you listen to and sort of digest and receive. It is fundamentally a claim on the entirety of your life. The name is written on your forehead. And the second thing I want you to see this morning, and it's, it's, it is probably the main thing that John gets at maybe throughout the whole book, it's this, that we resist and endure primarily through martyrdom. We resist and endure evil primarily through martyrdom. Now, I don't mean that in a, um, in a everyone look at me, feel sorry for me, I'm a martyr kind of complex way. I mean that everywhere you look in the book of Revelation, everywhere you read, when God's people resist and confront evil, guess what happens? They are prepared to be slain. They are prepared to die. You see it in verses 10 and 15 of this chapter. But it is the theme that is woven powerfully through the entirety of John's vision that faithfulness always requires a willingness to die. To deny yourself, to pick up your cross, and to follow Jesus Christ all the way to a tomb. And I know it's hard for us to hear that language and imagine that it belongs to us in the country that we live in, in a place where our physical lives are not threatened um, for being Christians. Um, but I think you have to imagine also and, and, and understand that in the early church, there were comparably few martyrs. <laughs> okay? There was a lot of violent persecution, but very few actually ended up in martyrdom. And yet they were prepared for martyrdom. And I, I think what John and what the book of Revelation in the New Testament is saying is that, is that following Jesus will cost you in a way that feels like death. It will feel like death to you. It may never, it may never come to physical death. But the early church knew death in other ways. And I think whenever the book of Revelation talks about evil, and it talks about resisting evil, 
Here, I think, is the fundamental question it puts to us as Christians. But even beyond that, I think this is the fundamental question for anyone who wants to stand up for the cause of good in the world. Anyone, whether you're a Christian or not, who wants to resist evil, who wants to be a part of resisting evil, here's the question. What is worthy of the fight in the first place? What is worthy of the fight in the first place? So in verse 17, what is worthy of economic hardship? What is worthy of potentially losing your reputation among your friends and your colleagues and your family members? What is worthy of taking away your leisure and your free time? What is worthy of enduring a series of false peaks in your life? What is worthy of everything that you have and everything that you are? If you are someone who longs to resist evil in the world, those questions will be put to you whether you like it or not. And the question I have for you is, do you have an answer for it? Do you have an answer that will satisfy all of those questions? Because John does. Back in chapter 5, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And what John is saying is that the final way to resist evil, the final way to endure in a way that actually makes you unconquerable is to fall in love with something more worthy of all that the world has to offer you. You know, I love what one commentator says about the way that Christianity came to invade and outlast the imperial system. He says this about the beasts in uh, chapter 13. The victory of the church over the demonic power which was embodied in the Roman imperial system was not won by seizing the levers of power. It was won when the victims knelt down in the Colosseum and prayed for the emperor in the name of Jesus Christ. The soldiers in Christ's victorious army were not armed with the weapons of this age. They were the martyrs whose robes were washed in the blood of Jesus. Now that is so important on so many levels, but mainly for this, that even those martyrs wore robes. And the, war, and the, 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 the robes they wore were not robes of their own faithfulness. They wore the robes of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. They wore robes that were washed in His blood, And so to them, they thought, look, having already gained everything in him, what else do I have to lose? And men, only a few generations later, the beast that had a mortal wound, the beast that seemed invincible, that could survive every kind of opposition, that beast perished. While the gospel of the martyrs continue to flourish and spread all over the world. The beasts that people thought could never die, died. And the gospel of the martyrs continued, and it continues to this day. May it be so of us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. I pray, Father, that your word would find good soil in us. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us eyes to see the evil around us, Father, to not imagine that it belongs to some long-ago time or place, but it belongs even now in our own world that Satan is cornered, he is angry, and he is at work. We pray, Father, that you would give us the courage to resist, um, that we would, uh, we would find in Jesus the worthiness that our hearts really long for, O oh God, and that that would be enough. He would be sufficient for us, Father. 
to give our very lives away. Help us to know what that looks like, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.